Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about episode 10 of Andor, which premiered on November 9th. It was directed once again by Toby Haynes and written by Bo Willimon. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to talk about this episode. <laughs> this episode is the best ever. <laughs> it is so good. It is so devastating. The writing could not be more sharp. It, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. How many Emmys can they give the show? Because for me, there are lines in this episode that I've been thinking about for days. And I just don't think that happens that often anymore with Star Wars sometimes. And like, it, it is it is just so good. It's so good. Yeah, this was um, this episode was kind of everything <laughs> in yeah. a rip your heart out kind of way. And uh, Charlotte and I, we actually were provided screeners for episodes eight, nine, and ten. So we're actually recording this on November eighth, so a day before the episode comes out. And uh, I have to say, we had seen episode ten. Let me back up. We did, if you listen to our first coverage of Andor with episodes one through three, uh, when we were lucky enough to get screeners for those episodes, we did kind of a funky recording where we would watch an episode, record, watch an episode, record, which is what we did here too. We got all three episodes for eight, nine, and 10, and we watched an episode, recorded, watched an episode, recorded. So we weren't giving ourselves spoilers or anything, and that wasn't a part of our discussion. So we had seen all three episodes actually by the time episode nine came out. And I remember that everyone was talking about um, what was the line that everyone was loving from episode nine? Uh, uh, There were 12 bodyguards or 12 guards on each floor. I think everyone was kind of- Never more than 12. Yeah, never more than 12. Everyone was talking about that line, which is a great line. But all I could think about, I was like, no one is ready for I can't swim. (laughs) I was like, no one is prepared (laughs) for the devastation of that line that's coming this week. And I am so excited to see everyone's reactions. Excited is the wrong word. I'm ready to pass you a box of tissues when you hear that line. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. It was so good. I am still thinking about actually Luthen's line at the end of this episode of I share my dreams with ghosts. Oh my God. I just think that is like one of the best lines ever. I, I when I was watching it again, I it brought tears to my eyes and mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just think it is so good. So one of the reasons why we got the screeners is actually because we participated in a press day a couple days ago with a couple of the creators from Andor and we got to speak to and participate in roundtable interviews with Bo Willimond and the executive producer of Andor, Andor Sane Wallenberg. She was so cool. Bo was brilliant and had amazing answers. And we're going to talk about a lot of those answers probably throughout this discussion. But I'm going to put that first roundtable interview at the end of our discussion. And I'll put some timestamps for if you want to zoom there first before you listen to this in the show notes. We also got to talk to visual effects producer TJ Falls and supervising sound editor David Accord which was such an honor. It was so great to talk to them and talk about how uh, sound and visual effects work together to come to come together to produce an amazing show like Andor. It was great. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And those conversations, those are some of the longest roundtables we've had, actually. Yeah. Uh, Specifically the one with Bo and Sané. They... I, I don't know how long it is because we haven't reviewed the audio yet from it, but it was, they're supposed to be 25 minutes. It's kind of the standard time we get with these roundtables. And that one just, they, again, were just so willing to just kind of talk about this show in a really in-depth way. And it was super cool to kind of have um, the opportunity specifically with Bo to talk specifically about this arc. Um, So a lot of the other people that we got to do the roundtable with were asking specific questions about this arc, um, as did we. So I think that is, uh, I've enjoyed getting the opportunity to do that, you know, rather than something big picture or even something before the show comes out. Uh, You know, we're in the middle towards the end of the season now. So it just, it was it was a really fun opportunity to talk to someone while the show is currently airing. Um, and yeah. I know we've talked about that before. Like, oh, man, I like uh, specifically with someone like Moses Ingram. I think we've talked a lot about how we wish we could go back and interview her now that we've seen Kenobi and hear so much more about her process and her character. But you don't get to do that very much. And so kind of to be able to get to do that here with Bo and Sane and TJ and David, it was just, it was really special. And I think you guys are really going to love the conversation. Um, I'll also just plug that this past week, I went back and listened to the original roundtables that we did before Andor premiered with uh, Diego Luna, uh, Denise and Kyle, and uh, Genevieve O'Reilly. I went back and listened to that roundtable and it is so enlightening now here towards the end of Andor. I really, if, if you're interested, it's an interesting listen to go back and hear what they were talking about and what they were saying about this show and their characters before we got into, you know, before the show had really premiered. And it's fascinating uh, how you can kind of see their thought processes as we've kind of watched these characters develop over the the course of 10 episodes now. It's really enlightening, really cool, particularly um, Denise and Kyle's section I found really cool. And okay, honestly, all of them, like Genevieve and Diego's were really great too. Again, reflecting back on their interviews before the show premiered, I, I just think it's, it's really cool. Um, we've said this a million times so far with Andor, but the cast and the crew have just been so giving with their answers and uh, forthcoming with how they've talked about this show even before it premiered that it's it feels it feels really special so I would encourage you to go back and listen to the those roundtables before the season ends I think it'll give you like a new um, perspective on all of these actors and their portrayals definitely I still need to do that myself and but it, from what you have texted me about going back and re-listening has been really cool. So I'm excited yeah. to do that too. I think, and sorry to harp on this, but I think the the thing that's really great about those roundtables um, now going back is how consistent all of them are and how they talk about their experience with Tony, their experience with, or, or their perspective of the show. Like it's clear that everyone, every single person <laughs> had very in-depth conversations with Tony Gill about their characters, about the galaxy at the time. And they're all getting, it's not that they all have the same like thing to say about the show. It's that they all conceptualize the show the same way at a very foundational level. So I, I just think that's, I think that's really cool to kind of hear the consistency among them about the empire and the galaxy and their characters and their experience with Tony and all of that. I just think it's really yeah. cool. 
Yeah, I think that this show in particular just has had such a clear vision mm-hmm. and such a clear tone. And it's hard to do, I think, when you have so many actors and so many different stories going on at the same time. But I think it's real a real testament to a showrunner like Tony Gilroy to make sure that throughout these different arcs, these different storylines that all have a lot of different players and were clearly filmed over a long period of time. I think actually the scenes in the prison, it was mentioned in our roundtables that they were the last things to be filmed, which I thought was really interesting because this episode sort of feels like it could have been a finale if they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And, and anyway, all that to say, I think there's a lot of moving pieces in the clear vision and clear tone uh, throughout the series is extremely felt. And I feel like you can tell when you hear interviews with everyone who worked on the show how clear that vision was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I think we've done enough of a prelude to this episode. Should we start talking about the prison riot? Yes, yes, we have to. <laughs> so the prison riot. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> okay. So last episode, which you should know as much as we did get the screeners and we did have access to episode 10, we did not watch episode 10. And I know that might be hard for some people to believe given what we talked about last episode. We were surprised too. But <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> the prison riot was kind of all I wanted. I was so excited for it. And when it was happening, it was sort of this like viewer euphoria, I guess, about how all of this is working and they're going to get out and they're all working together. And I just think that this show had, I don't know, I was like sobbing. It was so amazing. Um, And every single scene, every single speech was perfectly written, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, you know, from the sequel trilogy, the Stormtrooper Rebellion was kind of your favorite piece of speculation and the thing you wanted most from the sequel trilogy. And so to be able to have the prison riot here, it's like really see that story kind of come fully developed here in the last episode. And and I think we knew that this was coming. That's kind of what everything was pointing to. Right. But I think, you know, in kind of reflecting on this episode, um, a quote from Tony that we've referenced a lot on the show is how he says there's nothing cynical about Andor, which is such a fascinating way to talk about this show. And I think there could have been a version of this where the prison riot doesn't succeed and is kind of squashed before it really gets anywhere because we've seen that the Empire is really cracking down in really vicious and brutal ways. So I think there is a version of this where it was not as successful as it was, where they completely shut down and uh, overrun uh, the entire prison complex there. I think there is totally a version of that story that exists. But I think part of that, there's nothing cynical about our show quote. I think that uh, we can see that kind of realized through the prison riot. And I think (laughs) I hesitate to say even that though fully because it feels like only Cassian and Melchie survived the swim from the prison to the shore. Well, I guess we don't don't know know that. We don't know. But I don't know. It. I was... Uh, surprised to see only the two of them on the shore. So who knows what happened? Um, surely, I'm, hopefully, there were other people that survived. But Cassian and Melchie are together, and it's just the two of them. But yeah, I, I'm really glad that we saw it. And just the way that they slowly took over the entire prison complex, it was just, 
it was really cool. And I think that that's kind of like a dumb way to say it, right? Like, it was really cool. I really liked it. But <laughs> it's okay, though. It was... Like, that's the emotions. That's how it feels. Yeah. Like, you were watching it and you were like, that. this is all coming together. And this is really fun and cool to watch. And yeah. I think that's okay. <laughs> there was like a swelling of the episode, like a rising tide kind of vibe. Like, it just kept kind of building on itself until that wave, I guess, if I'm going to run with this metaphor, until that wave kind of crested over the side of the prison into the actual ocean. And to see kind of Kino is leading it, but Cassian is pushing Kino throughout this story and, and has been, especially since last episode, where he's kind of Cassian has already had a plan in motion. He started a plan with that other guy, um, like in the bathroom and stuff. So some of these wheels have already been starting, but now to finally get Kino on his side, um, and someone who actually cares about what happens to these people. Um, I know in the first episode, I speculated that Kino was, you know, if given the chance, he would totally side with the Empire. And I've been very happy to be proven wrong about that. And I think everything we see Kino do in this episode really speaks to that. And something you'll hear Bo and Sane talk about in the roundtable is this theme of sacrifice. But Bo was like ready to talk about this. <laughs> he was like, the theme of sacrifice. And I was thrilled, right? by the way. <laughs> I was like, yes, please talk about the theme of sacrifice, something we've talked a lot about on the show. Mm -hmm. And I love that there is this thematic North Star, I guess, with yeah. this concept coming up in every single character in this episode, not just with regards to the prison riot or anything like that, yeah. but how does sacrifice permeate throughout every single character. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved that. That is what we thrive off of on the show. <laughs> it was uh, particularly devastating because, I, and I hadn't entirely put the pieces together until we had this roundtable where Bo was talking about this theme of sacrifice. And he was like, I want you to go back and think about episode 10 now. And when Kino is starting this process of the prison riot when he agrees to go all in on it. He knows the way out. One way out. That's what he keeps saying. He knows what that way is. He knows it leads to the ocean. He knows he can't swim. And it puts kind of everything in a new perspective of Kino's actions and his sacrifice. He's not looking for alternatives. There is no other way out. This is the one way out. And he's going to put it all on the line for everyone else because he already knows that he can't swim, that he will not survive this. And uh, it's worth it to him to proceed with the prison riot. And at one point too before, I think the night before when he says, I'm going to assume I'm dead already. He's not assuming. He knows. He knows. And I think we kind of see that, not conflict, but that um, fear play out uh, throughout some of the episode. And this is just a testament to Andy Serkis and his portrayal of Kino. But um, I so good. Like you, so good. you see that fear in him, but he's able to overcome it. And even when he's giving that speech and Cassian is like, that's all you've got. <laughs> and then he has to really like dig down. Again, because he knows that he's not going to survive this. It hurts. It really hurts. But again, it's that sacrifice, that theme that we were talking about that, I, I don't know, gets him through. Andy Serkis's performance is un unreal. You sort of pointed out to me, if you watch his face fall after he says, I can't swim, and he gets to that end point and everyone is jumping... And there's this realization that I, you you sort of are positing that he he knows that the only way out will be jumping into the water. I don't know if he 
put two and two together of like, I can't swim, so I can't leave until he was faced with that at the very end. I think that he knew that he was sort of as good as dead. But once he reached that end point where everyone was jumping and leaving, I think there's this realization that all everything that he had helped and led before in the past like hour, sort of he wasn't ever going to see that freedom in that moment. And I think that his face comes from, wow, this is disappointing to, to I, I'm going to die here all within like 30 seconds. And it was uh, completely devastating. Yeah, it was it was really hard to to hearing that for the first time was just a gut punch in the same way that I think it is for Cassian. And I think you I see guessed. that. I yeah. I, yeah. And I watched this episode before you did and I was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Rising. Yeah. It's just like it's too much. I was like, when are you watching this, please? Please, I can't live here alone in this space. Yeah, I think that the thing that makes this just the 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 tragic cherry on top is that Cassian is pushed by the wave of people, right? He yeah. there is no moment of let me help you figure this out. Let's think of another plan. It's he's pushed from behind and Kino is gone and Cassian has to push forward. And yeah. I think that is, you know, Kino could have survived, right? I, I think that's always on the I table. I think there's a story in which he, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's you know? true. But the, the, the point I would say for the show or for Cassian is that Cassian doesn't know and Cassian probably assumes he's dead. And what that will. I think we as an audience also sort of assume he's dead and understand mm-hmm. that the sacrifice that he made to lead 5,000 people to their freedom or what looks like freedom, yeah. some semblance of freedom. I mean, he says, we know that, that we're going to be transferred to some prison to go and die and that will end today. You know, there's one way out. I feel like that's his sacrifice is able to rally everyone to rise up and yeah. Cassian sees that and whether or not he survives isn't necessarily the point of the episode it is to show how brave that sacrifice was yeah something that Diego Luna talked about in that roundtable the first one is he and I'm sorry I'll be referencing this throughout the show but it is kind of on my mind is he talked about how um you know the the Cassian we meet in Andor is obviously different. This is something we've discussed, but he talks about how Cassian throughout this show realizes that he's someone who can put together a group. And he used that phrase like big shot gangs are putting together a group. I think he said put together a group. But I think that's like a perspective of Cassian that I haven't really been thinking about as much. Like I think I've been thinking about his involvement in the rebellion. But I think the other side of that is Cassian seeing how he can put together a group, how he can be a leader. Because now we have two instances in this show with Aldani and now here with the prison riot where he has kind of stepped in and made some big changes, made some big plays, I guess, uh, given some inspiration. Inspiration is kind of a hard word because I'm thinking of his conversation with everyone on Aldani where he's like, I know you're all scared. It's hard. It's going to be hard. But like, here's what we're doing. So it wasn't he doesn't have that same kind of um, speech uh, in the way that like Kino does uh, that kind of 
inspiring speech, but what he does is still isn't still just as necessary. And he was the one pushing Kino along to then give that speech to the others. And he was part of helping the crew on Aldani um, be able to get to the next step and to be able to have some sort of success um, at the end of that mission, at least in the short term, with actually uh, stealing the pay, the the payroll uh, from Aldani. So I think that's a really interesting concept of Cassian. And once he, I don't know, kind of come, they've reached the end of the prison riot and all of these people have escaped. And it's because of his actions and, and that other guy that he kind of started the whole plan with. I hope he's okay too. I, thinking about people who survive, I hope he survived. So I think that's an interesting component of Cassian's character of kind of leading from within, leading from behind, I think I might describe it. Um, Because even though he becomes a leader in the rebellion, he's like a shadow leader in the rebellion, you know, kind of always working uh, in the background, I would say. I think it's actually an interesting concept because throughout the show and now we see that Dedra and the Empire, I think, is so zeroed in. And even Luthen is pretty zeroed in on finding Cassian and, you know, thinking that Cassian is this big time spy that <laughs> it should be caught when really he's just kind of found himself in these positions that um, are rebellious, I suppose. I wouldn't necessarily say that Cassian is, I don't know, he he's not necessarily, he's not a Luthan, right? He's yeah. not a mastermind in terms of uh, <clears throat> creating a rebellion link. Yeah. But the Empire seems to think he is. And I think there's a diff- an interesting uh, distance between what the Empire thinks he is and what Cassian actually is. And I think by the end of the series, we're going to have a uh, a lot to talk about, I think, about Cassian's arc in this season, about reluctant rebellion hero to rebellion hero. Um, and I think he has completed and checked all the boxes for being a hero, of course. And I'm not trying to say that. I just think there's quite a distance between what the empire considers him as Mm -hmm. versus what he is. And will that distance be um, reduced by the end of the season? I think it will. Yeah. But in, in which way, because I think this, I'm still thinking about uh, (laughs) the manifesto and how um, that, where is it? It makes me very nervous. Regardless, I, I feel like that is a, a key piece to this. And we when we meet Cassian in Rogue One, he really seems like an established leader within the rebellion who has peers, who does a lot of different missions and things like that. And um, we're not there yet, so I'm I'm intrigued to see how we get to that point. But all that to say, everything that has happened in season one of Andor so far, Aldani, this prison riot, I feel like it all leads to that character that we know in Rogue One. It's just like we're missing a lot of different pieces, which is good because there's a lot more to go. But there's some distance there that is is worth kind of keeping track of, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is the story of, of Cassian becoming someone who can give it all up for the rebellion, which is what he talks to Jin about in yeah. Rogue One. And I think again, the sacrifice, the, the sacrifice. sacrifice. How do you sacrifice. how do you get to be someone that you're able to sacrifice at all? Yeah, even with your peers, even with your friends, even with your family. How do you get to that point? Mm-hmm. I I would argue that Cassian is sort of at that point already, but it's not. It's not as clear as it is in Rogue One. Well, I think that I think this prison riot is a big 
piece of that because, you know, we saw after Aljani and that kind of in-between episode of, you know, Marva is the one who wants to go all in on the rebellion. And Cassian is is very, con- not content, but very ready to put it all behind him and not think about it. And, you know, big gin energy of, I can stand to see the Imperial flag fly. It's not a problem if you don't look up. That's kind of Cassian's energy, I think. But I think through the prison riot, again, this is just another example for him of just how extreme the empire is becoming. And this is all Luthen's bigger plan too for the galaxy at large. And we're, I think, I think we'll be seeing it play out with Cassian too. And that's what will be putting him closer to who we see in Rogue One. And, you know, thinking about Cassian's lines in Rogue One of, you know, everything I did for the rebellion, I'm sure Cassian's going to reflect on the fact that his actions kickstarted all of this on Aldani. All yeah. of this is happening because of his actions on Aldani. But is is he ever going to lay claim to Aldani? Because it, Luthen's not laying claim to it, clearly, and Cassian isn't either. I mean, obviously, it's illegal, so he would never really want to admit it, but... I don't think he will. I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's something we'll see him talk about, but I think it's something, a part of his conscience and his, like, yeah. character development. I think, I think once... I think because like people around him have talked about it enough, like I think he's going to start to realize how that really was the first domino to fall in kind of this widespread tyranny and kind of the extent that they're seeing it throughout the galaxy now and how automatic it was. And that that is all because of him and not all because you know what I'm saying here, though, but like he was a part of that and what felt like just this job to save his own skin had the most massive of ripple effects. And I think everything that he's seeing kind of since is really going, I think it's going to be heavy for him. And uh, yeah, I think I, I'm interested to see if we, he ever does kind of, if we get that character moment of him reflecting on Aldani and its impact more. Um, I also think about, you know, thinking a lot about Rogue One, I think in this episode, Cassian's lines to Jin in Rogue One about Jin being the messenger of Galen's message. And I wonder if Cassian and Melchi now become the messenger of what happened in the prison, that people were trapped there, that there was never going to yeah. be a way out. Um, I think that's an important piece. There's a big key also to the fact that no one knows what happens in these prisons, yeah. right? I Even Kino mentions that, that there's no one on the outside who knows that they exist, that mm-hmm. And news moves and travels so slowly there that they're so unaffected by well they're affected but they don't have any knowledge of the outside world and yeah. news and things like that so um there is a, a need i guess for cassian and melshi to share what happened but ha- with the right people obviously yeah yeah and then i also just want to say that this episode felt like kino's rogue one you know, talking about the theme of sacrifice, what Kino may or may not have known about the way out. Um, I think all of the music in, you know, the prison riot part, it felt very much adjacent to your father would be proud from Rogue One. And I guess I'm kind of operating from the mentality that Kino knew where this was leading. And I don't know, I think Cassian and Jin, after a certain point in Rogue One, obviously know there's no way out for them either, but they're they're still 
moving, you know, they're still going forward. And it just, it felt very much like this was Kino's Rogue One too. And especially thinking about that theme of sacrifice, obviously there's a connection there. I keep thinking about one of Luthen's lines in the early episodes of Andor about how you always build your exit mm-hmm. and how Kino as a leader of this uprising was building everyone else's exit but himself. Ouch. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I just I feel like that line always stuck with me with Luthen because I felt like Cassian and Jin ne- built a different type of exit in Rogue One and then sacrificed themselves for being the messenger, right? Getting that message up to uh, the rebellion so that a new hope could happen. Yeah. Um, and I just keep keep thinking about <clears throat> these missions and how they're building their exits. And I would say that even with Aldani, that exit was a little blundered too. <laughs> Shaky, yeah. Yes, Yeah. I wanted to also talk about before we move on from the prison riot to this clear shift in power that happens throughout the episode. And I described watching this as sort of this <laughs> euphoria, I guess. I I guess I just really like when authority gets bucked. Okay. <laughs> but um, I think that the floors were such a brilliant concept for displaying power. It reminds me of that line from the Aldani arc of a surprise from the top is never as surprising as one from below. I definitely butchered that, but the concept of the top versus the bottom, I guess, in terms of um, where the surprise is coming from, um, I think that the floor is an interesting um, like physicality for that surprise in the fact that once the the empire couldn't use the floor to shock people to death – and that vulnerability, we talked about this in the last episode, was not really a thing anymore. The vulnerability of the bare feet on the floor, when that was uh, completely ruptured and there was no use of the floor as a power tool anymore, there was a total shift. And I felt like once the floors were deactivated, it was clear that that was their uh, sort of the empire's failsafe for power um, in the prison. And I, last episode, we talked a little bit about how the voice that was over the loudspeaker is credited in the, in, in the episode as the voice of God. Some listeners have told us that the voice of God is a set term to talk about like uh, someone on the loudspeaker giving action, you know, cut those type of directions. And I didn't know that, but I still think it's worth talking about because the voice of God, I feel like is such an intense terminology for uh, the voice over the loudspeaker. And what's interesting about that is in this episode, we actually see Kino take the mantle of the voice of God to ignite the spark, light the fire type of vibe. (laughs) When Cassian and Kino enter the room in which the voice of God is speaking over the loudspeaker, we see that the voice of God is simply just a man. And uh, he has the power at his fingertips to shut off the entire thing. And we know from the moment he presses that button that it's going to take a while for them to turn back on the power to the full strength that it was at before because they say that it'll take a really long time for it to get going up again. But regardless, I like the fact that there's this complete power shift. We have this mysterious voice that gives instructions that is deep, that is sinister. Then we, we, we see who that is and it is just a guy 
with a high-pitched-ish voice that's completely different from the voice of God. And then we see Kino completely take over that. And I think it's a clear choice to not have Kino's voice over the loudspeaker sound similarly to the voice of God before. Instead, we hear Kino's words from his own voice and they're really powerful. It's it's partially mixed in in some of the shots, but it does not sound similarly to the voice of God, if that makes sense. Um, and I just feel like about midway through this episode, there's just a fantastic, satisfying power shift. And I really like how it's symbolized by the turning off of the floors and then Kino taking the mantle of being the voice of God here and guiding 5,000 men to some sort of freedom. Yeah. And even them, you know, telling the guards, you know, to be on program. I loved that. Mm -hmm. Also, when we we were talking with Bo Willimand, he was like on program and everyone on the Zoom did that. (laughs) I I forgot to mention that. That was like, oh my God. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was Uh, when they like started recording the Zoom and he was like, oh, everyone on program. Everyone yeah, I don't know if it'll make it in the final cut, but that happened. <laughs> it's funny. It funny. All right. Should we move to talking about Mon Mothma? Yes. Uh, it pains me to move on from the prison ride. I got to be honest, because it is um, kind of the highlight of like my one of the highlights of my Star Wars life experience. I think <laughs> I think that it was just so well done. Anyway, we're moving on to talking about Mon Mothma because, wow, lots happened in this episode with one conversation. Oh, yeah. This, you know, most of this episode was with Cassian and Kino uh, on Narkina 5. But the little pieces, the short amount of time we spent with you know, Mon Mothma and then later with Luthen and Lonnie, man, really uh, packed a punch for the short amount of yes. screen time, I think, comparatively to the prison riot. And this, uh, <laughs> it's funny because I feel like we kind of talked about this at the very tail end of our episode last week about the idea of Leda having to be married off for Mon Mothma to be able to do something as a distraction or as a cover up. And this was like one of the very early scenes of this episode. It was like, whoa, oh no, <laughs> like it's happened. But this whole conversation was so, I don't know the right word to describe it, but everything that Davos was saying, I think easily could have also been said from Luthen in a weird way. And Mon Mothma, and going back to this theme of sacrifice that Bo was talking about too, Mon Mothma, Mon Mothma is, she's giving, right? Obviously she's giving money to the rebellion. That's important. Bo talks about how you need all kinds of people in the rebellion, especially people to finance a thing like that. So it's not that she's not sacrificing or giving anything, but she's also, she's created such boundaries that she refuses to get her hands dirty. And that's going to stop her at a certain point. And I think she's reaching that boundary, that limit in a lot of ways. And this is something that Luthen was kind of talking to her about in the beginning, um, even when she kind of confronted him about Aldani, which he didn't admit to, of course, but I think she knows that he did it. And Davos's conversation with Mon Mothma, where he says, you know, Davos is going to give her the money or the ability to move money. And Mon Mothma is like, what do I owe you for it? And he says nothing. And she's really pushing like, no, I don't want to owe anyone any favors. And Davos says, a drop of discomfort may be worth the price of doing business. And that was just, 
ooh, like <laughs> talk about good lines. I think that was such a good line from Davos. He just wants to make her squirm. He wants her to get her hands dirty. And Mon Mothma is, she is so frustrated. And the fact that it then the drop of discomfort becomes an introduction between Davos's son and Leda to uphold these Shandrillan customs of young arranged marriages. It's just, it is, Mon Mothma is not about it, but I, I'm wondering if she is going to have a change of mind, of change of heart, or feel like she has to do it, you know? Yeah, I think you're so spot on by saying a drop of discomfort, maybe the price of doing business, is something that Luthen would say. But I think the difference here is that Davo, I think we've been saying Davos, but in the subtitles it said Davo. Mm. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like he is manipulative because he isn't necessarily, I wouldn't say, in it for the like pure reasons of starting a rebellion, right? I think it's very yeah, clear absolutely. that this guy, Davo, is sort of just has more money to do, more money than anyone else. And it's just, he likes new things. He likes shiny things. He likes doing a lot of things, I think is the, <laughs> is, is what I took away from this. And it's interesting to see like two different sides of pushing Mon Mothma to her boundaries, I guess, from one side of Luthen, the other side of Davo. It makes me a little suspicious of Tay's motivations too. We talked about that last episode about like, where does Tay actually stand? He was sort of this middleman in this episode between this conversation, but it was very clearly between Davo and Mon Mothma as well. I don't know. It makes me very nervous about uh, what she is willing to sacrifice and how this all has to do with Leda. Tony Gilroy has talked about how the dynamic between Mon Perrin and Leda is one of the hardest dynamics he's ever had to write in ever. <laughs> and I think that it is extremely complicated. This, uh, it's very clear, I think, from this episode what Mon, Mon thinks of her arranged marriage to Perrin. And it's also very clear what the audience thinks of Perrin as well. Like, we're not a fan of Perrin. But I also think that it makes us not a fan of the concept of the this arranged Chandrilla. traditional marriage of between on Chandrilla, the Chandrilla tradition, where teenagers get married, right? I was never going to be a fan of that anyway, but this show was not convincing me that this was like a normal thing either, that this was just a, um, that this is simply a tradition that probably shouldn't be continued, but Mon now sort of feels like she might have to, given her stance as a Shandrillan senator and someone who is living, now we know, within the quarters of a like a Shandrillan state-sponsored apartment that can't be changed. So she is surrounded by this inability to change, right? I think the concept that she says, I'm not thinking about it when it comes to his offer, and he goes, that's the first untrue thing you've said. I think that's true. And I think that there's going to be... What? How much is Mon willing to sacrifice? And I think there's also an argument to be made that all Davo is asking for is simply an introduction <laughs> for his son and um, her daughter. But you know there's more strings attached to that, mm -hmm. right? Like I think that I can just see the arguments happening now online of, well, all he wants is you know, an introduction, but we know that is not it. The conversation begins with, I'd prefer not to owe any favors. And I think that just even with that introduction, there's an owing of a favor. There's a potential for something more that 
Mon would have to be involved in. You know, it just opens up a whole can of worms that I think Mon doesn't want to mix her family with the rebellion at all, right? Oh my God, this conversation was so loaded and so intense, like biting. Mon, I've never seen Mon more, more cutthroat, I think. Yeah. And, you know, Mon loves Leda. She loves her daughter and doesn't want to put her in a position that she was kind of forced into. And that line from Davo of our position sometimes makes decisions for us. Don't you find, Senator? Again, just a, a fantastic line. And um, what what length is Mon going to go to? And we've talked so much about, you know, wanting Leda to not change, but she's just, she's got to grow up. She's got a lot of growing up to do still. And uh, we've been hopeful for her relationship with Mon Mothma uh, to change in the future for her to understand everything that Mon Mothma is doing. But ooh, I, how does that happen if Mon Mothma does force Leda into this? And I think it's hard for us to think about Mon Mothma is a very revered character and she is seen as I think someone who we say is pure of heart in the rebellion and you know she's not soft-spoken but she doesn't when we see her in the rebellion she's you know listening to everyone she's you know she's not a Palpatine she's not a Luthan there's something approachable about her um there's compassion that you get from Mon Mothma I think and so if she does come to make this decision to have the introduction to move forward with this thing with Davo, Davos, whoever he is. <laughs> um, who is he? Who is he? <laughs> <laughs> How is that going to change our perception of her character? Is she willing to sacrifice Leda for the rebellion, for the galaxy? That's a really, that's the biggest ask you could ask of someone, um, of a parent, you know, when it comes to your family, to your kids. And, now Mon Mothma is out of options. I think this is the point of Tay, not the point of Tay Colma, but he's the one who's supposed to be helping her move money around. She can't do it with Luthen anymore. She can't do it on her own. She goes to Tay Colma, set up this fake uh, charity, and he's the one that's kind of helping. And now this is the only option he can come up with. So what's her next move? It feels like she's kind of backed into a corner. She wants to help the rebellion. And the only person that we know of that can help her do this is Davo. And what he's asking is he's he's I think we see Mon, Moth, Mon Mothma kind of compartmentalize so much of her life, every aspect of her life, I would say. And Davo is now asking her to uncompartmentalize it and make her family part of the deal, part of the equation, part of what comes next. And because none of them are involved in it you know, that's going to open up a whole new can of worms. And I just, <laughs> I'm so interested to see where this goes next. One thing we asked Bo and Sana about was the fact that we've seen so much of Mon Mothma's story take place within her home, as opposed to like in the Senate or, you know, in, I don't know, somewhere else. Like we've obviously seen her in the Senate and with Luthen and things like that. But the majority of her story has taken place within the home, which as you pointed out, Charlotte is not only her home, but it's also like the Chandrillan embassy on course. And, uh, you know, there is this isolation there, but there is also, I assume, some level of comfort um, in being in your own home or a place you consider home. Although I wonder how much my mom actually considers that home. I guess that's another question. 
But it's because I think of bringing the family component into it of, you know, why we've spent so much time at home. Is her family going to be something she's willing to sacrifice? I I don't know. She becomes leader of the rebellion, right? So something changes. And, yeah. You know, and where does Leda go? Exactly. And that's not to say, you know, I think Leda and Perrin kind of become like an Ahsoka character in a way of, well, they weren't mentioned in Return of the Jedi, so they must be dead. Right. And it doesn't have to be like that. I think there's right. I think there's a way, a, a very easy way to make Leda, you know, like a leader in the rebellion in her own right in the future. Or, you know, she stays with the empire, becomes a prisoner of war, or, you know, any number of things can happen uh, to her. But I think they do kind of become similar to the Ahsoka question of, okay, well, where do they go? What happens? Um, Especially knowing that Mon Mothma, something gives for her. I think she she's going to have to make a sacrifice. She's going to have to get her hands dirty. She can't stay prim and proper and having all of these limitations on how far she's willing to go. She can't do that anymore. I think that's the reality that she's kind of having to reconcile with. And that's something Luthen has been trying to tell her. That's what Davo is pushing her towards, even though, of course, he's not with the rebellion or even care. He just wants to be able to keep his money and do whatever he wants with it. But they're they're both from like a similar mentality of you you don't get to have other people do the hard stuff and just send them money. Like that's not how it works. Definitely. I am scared for what situation is going to come with Mon and Leda. I am rooting for this mother daughter uh, story to not to have a happy ending, but I'm, I'm nervous about it all given what's on the table. Yeah. And I do think that once we think about how every single character has to sacrifice something in this specific episode, it, um, I don't know, it reframes how I think of what's going to happen next for Mon and with Leda. I, I do eventually think that she might take Davos's offer mm-hmm. up, unfortunately. Well, he says she's thinking about it and she is. Yeah. Yes, because exactly. I think she, yeah, she rejected not rejected Luthen, but was so upset with him for the lengths he went to with Aldani. She's like, I can't do that. I can't be a part of that. How many people are dying? You know, and and now mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, it's like the <laughs> F around and find out kind of mentality, I think, a little right. bit. Um, let's, before we move on to Luthen at the end of the episode, I think we should just mention we get – a like a split second of Ferris. The shortest <laughs> the shot shortest. possible. It was sort of like, why is this in the episode? <laughs> right? They've done this a couple times throughout Andor where they've kind of flashback. They did it with Cinta and they did it, I think, a couple times with Ferrix where it's just like 45 seconds of Cinta or Ferrix <laughs> and then no more. But uh, yeah. we hear some... Just reminding you that it exists and that yeah. Rebellion is, is Things brewing. Things are going. Yeah. I maintain <laughs> that Marva has the manifesto, uh, has Nemec's manifesto, but we hear people talking about Marva and that she is hiding her medicine, something along those lines. And then Cinta is watching this conversation about Marva and then someone else is watching Cinta. So things are brewing on Ferex. Everyone's watching each other. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get to arguably the other star of the show, Luthen and Lonnie. You know, when we first saw Lonnie in this conversation between Dedra and the the supervisor whose name one day we will write down in the kind of 
control room at the Empire, and he was like, I think we should do this. I was like, you're getting a lot of screen time. That's who are you? <laughs> yeah, and it happened early on in the series, too. Mm-hmm. He he gets zoomed in on a lot, and he has a sort of rebellious face, I'm going to be honest. He does. He does. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out he's with the Rebellion, or rather, he's with Luthen. He's he's a double double agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved the scene. There's some things that I just want to note about the scene. First off, Luthen's soliloquy was downright Shakespearean. It was unreal. It was really unreal. And I mentioned how much I love the line of, I share my dreams with ghosts, but I think the entire soliloquy is unreal. Unreal. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's no, there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my eagerness to fight. They've set me on a path for which there was no escape. I yearn to be savior against injustice without contemplating the, the cost. And by the time I looked down, there was no longer ground beneath my feet. What is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise I know I'll never see. Are you kidding? Like this is in Star Wars? Mm-hmm. This These lines are – I feel like I look at this and I read that. I'm like I am reading something that is like – a classic you know both it is space opera and really ran with it (laughs) it is so good it is so good I I don't know I just I I transcribed the whole thing just so that I can look at it you know (laughs) (laughs) anyway I think that there's something really cool about the staging here though that is worth discussing so we see Luthen in this cape vibe when the doors open after talking with Lonnie on this like speaker that he puts in his ear also, just to our previous conversation about like this like uh, nameless voice in your ear that you could call the voice of God in the prison, but I do think that Luthen almost plays the voice of God in Lonnie's ear in this episode, in this part too, especially when they're going down in the elevator. And then when Lonnie sees Luthen, Luthen is uh, caped in dark robes and is on the classic in the classic like Star Wars hallway with no railings but a clear uh, <laughs> drop below them, so there's a a, f- a feeling of um, unease, I guess. And even with the arches, to me, it really reminded me of like the door that Lonnie is within within the elevator, and then also the arches in which. Luthen is standing beneath remind me a lot of a coffin. They're shaped like a coffin. It is um, cathedral-esque. It is giving me the Grim Reaper vibes in a lot of ways. We've spent a lot of time talking about the concept of a gateway to hell where a character passes through an arch in which they will experience a lot of concepts of the underworld. And I honestly, I feel like a lot of the staging in this particular scene was underworld-esque, was hellish, to be honest. And I think that in the conversation and the topic of sacrifice, both of these two characters are laying it all on the line to say, this is how how much I've I've sacrificed is it worth anything and Luthen has this great soliloquy about that sacrifice and Lonnie is sort of put in his place about how important that sacrifice that he is making is despite wavering for the past year I just think the staging was brilliant and is one of my favorite scenes I've ever seen in Star Wars yeah it was incredible it was one of those hold your breath moments the whole time and yeah uh, I can't really add more to this the staging conversation I think you put it all really well Charlotte but um there is just that 
tension when the elevator opens. Luthen is standing there, the wind blowing, no railings. We've seen this setup a couple of times before in Star Wars. Like we know where it's going. Yeah. There is something that is going to change by the end of the conversation in this type of staging. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like someone is going to be pushed in a direction that maybe they don't want to go in. Well, or I mean, and I mean, honestly, of course, my first thought was that Lonnie's going to step out and you know, one of them is not coming out of this. Like one of them is going to fall and it will probably not be Luthen. I would argue that even Lonnie by sort of cowering is not the right word, but Luthen putting him in his place and then closing the door right on his face Mm -hmm. at the very end of that. You'll stay with me, Lonnie. I need all the heroes I can get. And then he shuts the door right then. And the door isn't a normal door. It's a Star Wars door, but it has two layers that looks just like a coffin. So he's really like entombing him. He's encasing him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's exactly what you were saying though, Caitlin. It's like in a lot of ways, Luthen is sending him to his death, but there's no turning back now. Yeah. Well, and the thing too about Luthen already being there is that Luthen is, right, he's already part of the damned. He's within the underworld here. He's not walking into it. He is in it. He is of it, I guess you could say. And yeah. he is, you know, damning Lonnie to, you know, you'll stay with me. Because I think the reality is, is if Lonnie... Uh, resisted, I think Luthen would kill him. It's what he wants to do with Cassian because Cassian knows mm-hmm. who he is. And mm-hmm. as Clea said, again, oh my God, shout out to Clea. You know, we can't have Luthen walking around in his head. It's the same for Lonnie. And I, as you were talking, I was thinking about how it is interesting now that Lonnie, the reason Lonnie wants to quit this is for his kid. And Mon Mothma is stopping herself in this episode for her kid. And Lonnie was not able, he, he has to continue to sacrifice potentially his, his life with his daughter uh, to mm-hmm. continue down this path that he has in a way signed to deal with the devil in the form of Luthen. And it makes me feel like Mon Mothma is going to have to do the same at, at some juncture in some way. Maybe it's not with Davo, but it's with something, something along the way. And I think that's pointed, obviously, to have both of these parents kind of try and put limitations, boundaries uh, around themselves, their kids, their relationships with their kids, et cetera. Uh, and Luthen says, no, absolutely not. Uh, you are going to stay with me. And the way that he tells Lonnie that line of, I think about you constantly, Lonnie, oh, it just, it really, I don't know. It. I think it's, it's. If I were Lonnie, I would die right there. If I heard someone, well, say it's that a boundary. To me. It's a boundary cross, right? Like yeah. it, it feels scary. Yeah, it's a yeah. That's the best way to describe it. It feels scary, and um, because you know we know that Lonnie hasn't contacted them for over a year. It's what Clea says to Luthen earlier in the episode, and it's been a long time since they've you know been in contact and. But Luthen knows everything that Lonnie has been up to uh, in the interim, everything about his life. And I'm sure Lonnie is like, I'm no one. He doesn't need me. I'm just going to give him this and be done. Wash my hands of it. And he's not able to do that. And Lonnie knows that. And I think if we're comparing, again, our parents in this episode, Lonnie and Mon Mothma, Lonnie doesn't seem to have the same kind of I don't know. I would love to know what made Lonnie sign up to do this in the first place, that spark 
for the rebellion that he may have had in the in the beginning because it doesn't feel like he has that now and of course this is a very intense highly emotional conversation but um it doesn't feel like he has the same kind of stake in it that mon mothma does or that mon mothma will have in the future so i don't know i'm kind of interested to see how that plays out and yeah this episode or, or this speech here at the end uh with with Luthen, I think you read most of it, but you, you stopped right before one of my favorite parts of it, uh, where Luthen says, and the ego that started this fight will never have a mirror or an audience or the light of gratitude. And that use of mirror makes me think of Cinta, her great line yeah. to Vel of I'm a mirror to you showing you what you need. I, I can't remember the exact line, of course, now. But Luthen doesn't have anyone like that in his life. I guess Clea, perhaps, but that mirror of someone else to show gratitude, to show love, that's clearly not his and Clea's relationship at all. So he he is singular. He is on his own. And I'm sure there are things that he's involved in uh, or that he does that Clea is not aware of either. Um, he is kind of an island unto himself. And it really does... There's so much we still don't know about him. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago. Who is Luthen? Like where, how did he start this 15 years ago? Yeah. That's that's prequel era, right? What's my timeline here? Well, <laughs> well, 15 years ago is when the Empire rose. Yeah. So the moment that the Empire yeah, okay, yeah. Order 66 happened, yeah, he... That's that's that. Yeah. So who was he then? What is his position? Um, the fact that he, the use of the word equation, I think is a really interesting word choice. It's not plan. It's not dream. It's not even like a dream I had 15 years ago to get rid of the empire, the equation. It's a means to an end. Yeah. There's something cynical or pen to paper, black and white about an equation. Mathematical mm -hmm, with exact. an answer that like only one answer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One way out, you might say. Oh my god, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just I really wonder if we are ever going to find out where Luthen came from. Uh and I maybe we don't, you know, and I think that could be really I don't know if I need to. Right? I don't know, I don't know if, if I, I need, to. need to either, but uh I am I wanna know who the ghosts are that he shares his dreams with. Are those the ghosts that help him create this equation? Uh, the sacrifices or the loss that he had 15 years ago or was it has it always been born from this place of this is what the galaxy needs and I'm gonna do it like has he always been a shop owner was he a shop owner 15 years ago for his antiques shop and he was like nope this is what I'm gonna do and you know, that would kind of fit into this conversation with Andor of it's just regular people who take up the mantle that push mm -hmm. the rebellion further piece by piece, step by step. And then he's just gone all the way. You know, I don't know. I just I think it, it was incredible. Again, George Lucas has always said Star Wars is a space opera. And this this is a space opera as it gets, I think. <laughs> uh, it was incredible. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited for everyone to see it. Me too. Should we move into our roundtable interviews? Yes, I think we should. Okay. So the first one will be with Bo Willimond and Sané Wallenberg, writer and executive producer of Andor, respectively. 
And then after that, I'll do a little sound effect and then we'll move into the interview with visual effects producer TJ Falls and supervising sound editor David Accord. So here we go. Without further ado, let's get started with those. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Gustavo from Trial of the Force. Very excited to talk to you guys. Uh, so my question is for both of you. Uh, Andor so far has been a very precise and deliberate show. Uh, the pacing has been very intentional until we get like these moments that just hit you like a sledgehammer. Especially episode 10, we get a line from Luthen towards the end of the episode where he says, I've made my mind a sunless place. I share my dreams with ghosts. Like moments like that just like really capture what the feeling and, and theming of the episode is and the series as a whole. So my question is like, how do these moments come about? Like, how do we decide what characters kind of have like these moments that just like just punch you in the face and just like make your jaw drop? I don't know. It's it's uh, it's it's like sort of like asking, uh, you know, a professional ice skater, like, you know, how, how do you do how do you how do you do like a triple lots? <laughs> a lot of practice and a lot of falling down <laughs> until you get it right. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, first and foremost, it all starts with Tony Gilroy. Uh, he walked into the writer's room with uh, about an 80-page Bible, a very extensive and detailed idea of what he wanted to do over the course of the season. There were some big gaps along the way, which he admitted that we needed to figure out, and um, and 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 some things that he brought in that we ultimately tossed and, and came up with better, I hope, better ideas for. Uh, but he started with a very clear vision, and, and characters like Luth and Rail, for instance, or Cyril and Deirdre, um, and, and some of the others along the way, uh, pretty fully formed, you know, and and so Dan, what Danny and I were trying to do was uh, just help flesh that out, deepen it, ask questions, poke holes, um, see if we could replace really good ideas with even better ones, um, you know. Uh, but 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 Tony's vision and leadership really gave us a, a running start. Uh, you know, when you talk about something like Kino Lloyd's uh, uh, arc over the course of these three seasons, we, the the notion of a prison was a pretty vague one. We knew that, okay, here's a guy who's just on the Aldani raid. Now he's on the run. Naturally, it's most interesting if something stops him being on the run. What's the most extreme version of that being thrown into a prison? Uh, how do we do a prison that isn't like every other prison movie you've ever seen in your life? Uh, it started almost from a very rudimentary place of, where, of well, most prisons are sort of dark and damp and lots of shadows and dirty. What if this one's like super bright and clean? You know, if most prisons have lots of guards what does a prison look like as a very few guards? How do you pull that off? Um, maybe they're maybe it's a factory. Maybe they're building something. Who knows? And 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 Kino is a character that we developed in the room from scratch. Uh, and and you know layer by layer. First, it's like well maybe he's a foreman. Maybe he buys into the system. Maybe maybe Cassian has to convince this guy in order to have a chance of getting out. And maybe now he becomes this opportunity for a mini arc where you see how over a very short amount of time someone can go from plugging into the system as a sort of automaton into becoming a rebel, which is part and parcel of the larger story that we're trying to tell of Cassian. And and so you you kind of just almost approach it in these very rudimentary, simple ways, layer up, you know, one, one, uh, you know, you're learning sort of 
I don't, I don't know why I brought up ice skater analogy because I know nothing about ice skating. Um, but, but you know, you you got to do one twirl yeah, before you do two, and then three, and and eventually you 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 hit something and you land it, and you feel like that feels right, you know. So I wanted to bring up something, Bo, that you mentioned at your BAFTA screenwriters lecture because I've studied and worked in theater my whole life, and in that talk you mentioned how discoveries made in earlier episodes can have an influence and ripple effect on scripts that are still in development, much like a theatrical production process. So for either of you, have there been any standout moments like these while you while you both were working on Andor, like any moments that you revisited or rediscovered while writing that were influenced from earlier scenes or earlier episodes that you may have worked on? I think Sana's better for this one because she's been in the trenches with Tony since before I arrived and and long after I, <laughs> I finished my last draft on the script. Uh, so you've you've witnessed everything, Sana. Thank you. I think, you know, certainly for all the, you know, really strong vision and kind of over, you know, and kind of overriding kind of story arc, you know, that Tony brought into the room and that we then fleshed out with the help of his, you know, trusted collaborators, you know, um, Bo and, and Dan, you know, as and then, you know, whatever, whatever, wherever we took it at the writer's room, of course, then the really hard work starts because then everybody took these episodes away and then, the, you know, made them into, you know, you know, an outline and then of course right really digging deep to writing the script and i think you know things evolve and you really dig deep for you know it, the finding the broader you know of a pass is you know and getting that right is you know was kind of quite you know dynamically and quickly achieved when you have you know three very strong you know creative you know people in a room you know that really know and trust each other and you know the speed that was actually in the and the, the creative feeding of each other was kind of really fast. But then when everybody dug in deeper, of course, you come across other questions and, and new things. And they constantly feed back and forward and, and, and you know, and good ideas. Then, you know, then you feed them back, you know, backwards. And I think that is a, that evolving thing when you strive for perfection and finding a very intricate, you know, multi-layered, you know, piece with a huge, you know, with a lot of players within the way I think that is very much part of the process and and if you pay attention to that and really benefit from what you find and keep on challenging you know the own process you come you know hopefully you know you get to something very you know complex and multi-layered and rewarding at the end and I, I think I got lucky too because uh the Nate, the prison is such a big build, and Sana actually had to make that happen with Luke. Uh, that I believe the prison block was shot last, right, Sana? It was it was shot last because you we were quite contained, and it seemed the right way, um, you know, to kind of finish the whole show. But it also really allowed, you know, for Bo writing when you're dealing with something, with anything that you could write, and when you dug deeper into it, and then you were left with actually having to produce the scripts, but you had to create and Luke was our designer and you had to, you know, if it's a constant feeding back, okay, if I get to go to that corner and how does I do this? And how would this work in the prison? And it's a constantly evolving thing and having that time for that very specific world to, to kind of evolve and, you know, to be written and for us to be then allowed to, you know, able to create it. It was a good place at the, you know, to shoot it last. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so I, you know, I'm lucky that it benefited from, uh, this incredible cast that now had months working together, Sana and Luke and everyone else. Uh, that you know, here here was 
I, I basically got to benefit from this is the the final push here. And in a way, I guess all of those prisoners escaping Narkina 5 at the end, it was also for all of you, like, we're finally wrapping production. <laughs> One way out. <laughs> One way out. <laughs> we printed t-shirts for everybody with it on. First, episode 10 uh, is an absolute masterpiece. I think we can all agree with that. Um, and Andy Serkis's performance could easily win him an Emmy, in our opinion. Um, but I've just got a quick two-part question. First, did you have Andy Serkis in mind when uh, you wrote that speech to the prisoners? And second, when he was leading them in chanting One Way Out, as y'all were just saying, um, were you already considering the harsh reality that Kino Loy can't swim and potentially doesn't make it out of the prison himself? Great questions. And uh, I dig you guys' a setup there. Like you've you really yeah. got lighting in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> um, um, great questions. Uh, when we're de developing characters, especially ones that were developed in the room from scratch, the way Kino was, uh, sometimes you might bang around like, you know, what a what is this person like? Who might play them? And sometimes you're talking about an actor that you know might be you know from 50 years ago or something. You're you're trying to get a sense of a vibe. You're not necessarily trying to cast it in the room. Uh, wasn't thinking of Andy or any actor when uh, per se specifically like we're writing this towards this actor. Um, uh, but we were definitely going for a, a particular vibe. Um, and and when uh, the, and what we did know was that we wanted to write one hell of a, a cameo arc. That this was for 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 something that a, a really great guest actor could come in and essentially kind of headline those three episodes as the face of this prison. We wanted to write a role that could attract someone amazing, and um, and so luckily for us. Uh, you know, Andy was was available and wanted to do it and felt like winning the lottery um, because we were like, if we don't get someone of, of that caliber, the, the I don't think, you know, the prison will work. You know, but also I think so, eventually, you know, when when the three scripts, you know, were kind of, you know, all there and had just, you know, evolved, it, he really became somebody that I think we all felt, you know, really drawn to, and it kind of became a natural, you know, a natural bit of casting for us. And then, you know, we were, you know, we were lucky that, you know, he felt the same about, you know, our, you know, our show and that part and, you know, and the rest is for everybody to enjoy. In terms of the very end, I can't swim. No, I mean, these are these things where you don't start with that necessarily. Uh, first is like, okay what's the journey this guy has you know he he's plugged into the system he's if he's not pro empire he's kind of a shill for it for out of pure self-interest um and we okay we're gonna have a prison break at the end and he's gonna be leading the way that's quite an arc over the course of three episodes mm -hmm. but you're always looking how do you subvert expectations how or how do you uh, in a good way and replace right. them with something better. How do you have the most emotional impact? If there's a triumph for this guy, you know, is there also a tragedy? Uh, and I forget whether we were talking about Luthen's speech uh, first with Young or or the ending for Kino, but we were very interested in the theme of sacrifice. Hmm. Uh, and and so, I mean, it's so rousing. I. I I mean, I knew what would happen when I watched that episode again recently, episode 10, and I was still like, my pace right. pulse was, mm -hmm. was racing. And, uh, and, and to think they finally have made it out to this place a, where we begin with three episodes, two episodes before, this might be the last breath of fresh air that you ever 
breathe in mm -hmm. and here they are breathing that fresh air and there's there's freedom in front of them mm -hmm. it i don't it i don't i remember it was in the room and i don't remember who said it first maybe it was me maybe it was tony but you're you're putting yourself in the physical space of now i finally get to dive into the water and try to swim for my freedom and i think we were trying to do just the math of like okay uh how far away from the shore is it a mile is it two miles can these guys actually you know how many of them are going to make it are there going to be tie fighters coming in like you know how what does it take you an hour to swim is that realistic like we're we're dealing with just like the basic logic issues and then it was like what if kino can't swim <laughs> wow mm. What if, and then you're like, oh, oh my God, he's just led 5,000 people to freedom. Wow. And when, and then you think of the line, I'm going to consider that I'm, uh, that I'm already dead. Yeah. Cause he knows mm -hmm. even if he makes it out there, hmm. that, that he's a goner. Hmm. And then you're just like, well, uh, that's, that's when the story almost takes over and tells you what it needs to do. Hmm. You're like, it's obvious that that must be done. Hmm. You know, it's not even a, up for debate. Hmm. Thank so you. It is so, really you know, about these, these things sort of arise slowly and surely and organically. I wish we were brilliant enough to know that <laughs> from the get go, but you kind of <laughs> have to. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Alex from Star Wars Explained. Um, the prison arc, especially episode 10, is one of my new favorite Star Wars stories, and you just broke my heart again talking about it. Uh, it it's so well done. But the first two episodes, oh, the first two episodes are very bleak for a Star Wars story. The balance between despair and hope that has to be tricky to achieve. So how did you achieve that balance? And were there any moments or situations that you considered for Narkina 5 that you ultimately decided, like, no, that's too far for a Star Wars story? Mm. Well, Sonic can speak more in terms of, you know, if 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 anything down the, the road ended up being too far. Although, I, from what I remember us discussing the room and, and working on in the scripts, we pretty much did what we set out to do. Yes, it yeah, but I, I, I mean, in terms of, look, in the previous three episodes you have the Aldani raid uh, or I mean there's one episode that sort of buffers between those those but but if Cassian's been on the Aldani raid this was a one and done this is you know I want some money in my pocket I got to get out of here maybe I'm a little swayed by the you know the manifesto maybe um sort of seeing the you know the the way that the Aldanis are being treated and then starting to you know I, I know I know you know what what happened on Ferrix and and maybe this is starting to make me feel a little more anti-empire you know i mean we know he's anti-empire but i mean in a more sort of in a way with more agency um but then he goes off to niamos and he he's doing what he set out to do which is take the money and run and disappear uh, so if you really want to see the process of someone becoming a full-fledged rebel they he needed to be confronted with the full oppressive weight of the empire uh and and it, it seemed like the very best place to do that is in a prison that kills hope you know um if if you're trying eventually to get to a new hope you have to ask yourself the question uh um why is that hope new because that hope was being smothered so let's see it but then we know we're going to give the audience 
some friggin' hope by the end of it, at least. So it's worth the journey. And I hope we earned that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caitlin from Sky Talkers. So nice to speak with you both today. We've talked some about Cassian and the prison, and I wanted to shift gears and ask about Mon Mothma's story in these episodes. Um, we spent the majority of our time with her within her home and with her family. Can you talk about some of the writing choices that led to telling her story largely from within the home thus far? Well, with Mon Mothma, I mean, first of all, we we have we knew we had the amazing actor Genevieve O'Reilly to to bring life to this character, and she's so capable. And so uh, uh, we knew we could we could we could uh, we could do almost anything we want there, and she could pull it off. And if you're you're asking yourself questions about people's journeys over the course of this series, um, she's becoming radicalized too. Uh, and 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 with her cousin Vel representing the face of someone who's actually willing to get in the trenches, uh, showing back up to her her home and reminding her that revo that revolution uh, actually requires uh, violence and and sacrifice and danger. Seeing her begin to process that and think about sacrifice in a very real way, as opposed to an abstract way, is, uh, is, is crucial to her story. Uh, and, and how, and, 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 and it's sort of, you know, making you think about, okay, you need people that are willing to die for a revolution or a rebellion. You also need people that are willing to raise the money <laughs> to buy those people the weapons and things they need in order to pull it off. And so it's, it's trying to paint the pic the fullness of the picture of, as, as sort of, you know, disparate and kind of frayed and non-organized as the rebellion is at this stage, uh, how does it begin to coalesce? Um, and But then what does it feel like to be in a senator's shoes who has the burden of that on her shoulders? And, and you know, in ep if episode 10 really does focus on sacrifice and you're hearing Luthen talk about how he sacrificed everything, you're seeing people like Kino and many other prisoners are sacrificing their lives for the greater good so that some of them can escape, if not all of them. You're, you're looking at a potential sacrifice, or at least a sacrifice that's asked of Mon, of, of her daughter. And we don't know what she's going to do yet. Stay tuned. But we, I hope, have done you know, the storytelling up until this point to get the sense that being married at 15, to, 15 years old to Perrin maybe wasn't her favorite thing in the world. And now she's being asked to consider sacrificing her daughter to the same tradition for the greater good. You know, but so... A, but also, ahead, you know, Mosma, Mon Mosma has been a character that, you know, we have overseen the public persona and, you know, and we have seen, a, you know, a very particular Mon Mosma and... And really what Under does, you know, really goes right behind the scenes and takes a character in a different, and shows us a very different aspect of her life. I, I mean, I would hope that people were gasping when you realize that she is actually fundraising money for the rebellion. And, you know, and, and, you know, and I think anything, you know, the humanity of her story and what brings her to become a rebel herself is, you know, automatically brings you also back to your families. You know, it is about, you know, her family connection and her birth, you know, made her a senator at the tender age of 16 and dictated a lot of her life. And she has given it to it willingly. It's like, you know, she she took that burden on, you know, like a queen, you know, kind of descending a, a throne. And, 
and you know, it had a huge personal impact on her life. And the empire crouching down, now compromising also what she tried to believe to do through the Senate, you know, is you know, is a human story to tell and, and the family connection, the impact of her marriage, her life as a mother, her old friendships. All those things are actually you know, very much humanity and show you how hard it is to make decisions when somebody pushes you too far that you can no longer, you know, be silent and do nothing. But the human sacrifice is huge. And I think therefore bringing us into her home feels very important um, and, 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 and significant, you know, to tell what her sacrifice is and who she is and, and why she acts you know, in the way she does when we know the perfect persona that she has to play most of her life. Hello, thank you for your time today. I'm Brian from Pink Milk, where we talk Star Wars queerly. And um, first, I want to say thank you for creating Cinta and Vel for us. Uh, we know in the past that Disney's been reluctant to acknowledge queerness exists. Um, I also want to say thank you to Bo for writing that beautiful dinner scene where her queerness has actively challenged many of us queer folks have had to or continue to just sit at those um <laughs> dinner conversations especially with thanksgiving looming here in the united states <laughs> um i'm curious if there was any difficulties in creating those two characters and if so what sacrifices were had to make to get them on screen luckily uh Really, <laughs> I, I, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there, there was no pushback whatsoever, as far as I'm aware. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, first of all, let me say all credit goes to Tony sort of in the vision and conception of this show. And, and, um, and I think that, you know, when we were talking about Val and Cinta early on, we weren't necessarily even talking about them being in a relationship. That was a discovery, you know. It wasn't like, oh, we want to uh, let's let's have this queer couple here at the center of our show. No, um, we we were we had we had Vel, which we knew from the Bible was going to be a very important character. She's related to Mon, and and um, and we really liked the tension between being the sort of rich girl from Chandrilla on the one hand, and then eating the grubs, you know, and and sleeping in a tent out on Aldani. <clears throat> But as we had to populate Aldani, we wanted these to be interesting people. You know, we're not just sort of like, uh, uh, you know, meat for the meat grinder that are going to get, you know, sort of torn up by this raid. Let's really consider each of them. And Cinta started to emerge. Yes. Then kind of organically. Yeah, um, they, they had to go out with each other. It just, it just became yeah, like, part of the story. We really didn't set out, but... It just felt really right for 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 both of the characters and for the Aldani gang and for our show generally, for for Vel's choices in life and you know part of why she turned her back on her Shadrillian rich girlness. You know she clearly had you know had to, you know, fight you know for for being you know it's all the problems that you know that we know that you know that it will be in the galaxy as true as as they are here on earth i think and it's just it just feels right to 
you know, to broaden yeah. if we are going, you know, if we are the kitchen sink side and we're going really, you know, you know, into all these characters and get to know them, you inevitably want to know who they're like and how they live and what makes them taken, you know, not only for this one big moment, but generally. And I think the well that we meet, you know, who she is and who she loves and and you know and and is really part of who she became and how she also became the rebel of the course. So it was just a very natural thing. And we never got any pushback from anybody. And thank God it is 2022 and just about time that we can depict, you know, all of society um, rather than only very particular, acceptable, um, you know, traditional ways. I think, though, I think the key, you know, and in, 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 in I hope why it works, you know, is that, uh, we started with people out in the world trying to foment rebellion. Um, and that's it. And then who are these people? And that we didn't start with this character is gay or this character is straight or this character is bi or this you know character is anything other than let's start with them. Let's drop in with them in action, trying to do something. Um, and then, and then, if we arrived at that, it happened organically. So it, it it's not what defines the characters; it's just part of who the characters are, you know. And I, um, and and I, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. And uh, and then, and then, once you've made that choice, you just now have to be in the reality of these two characters to say, okay, what is this relationship? What what's right about it? What's wrong about it? What's work? What works? What doesn't? And then, what are the dramatic implications down the line? You know, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brad from uh, Friends of the Force. Uh, speaking of Cinta and Bell, um, something Cinta says is, "I'm a mirror. You love me because I show you what you need to see," which I thought was an amazing line. Um, likewise, I think fans are loving Andor because it's showing us what we, the viewers, need to see about this point in history and i think dystopian stories are at their best when they say something about our own world so uh, for you guys for both of you what sort of big ideas were important for you to examine through the show whether it be this whole season or this this sort of three episode arc and what do you hope viewers see andor's truth as well uh son has been much more front row seat from the very beginning all the way through so i want to turn it over her but but I'll, i will say that tony walked into the room saying i want to think about this first season is the education of cassian andor right like how what does it take to go from being a, a sort of self-serving um <clears throat> guy who 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 uh you know may have a distaste for the empire but is ambivalent in terms of doing anything about it too what does he need to go through an experience in order to have a real transformation where he is choosing by choice to 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 walk towards re rebellion um and and so i think how how does that evolution take place in the human soul and then you start asking yourself that of all of the characters in your in the show um what evolutions are they going through and and how are they becoming the people they are um and and i and i think a big part of this ultimately i mean because we know where rogue one is going to get us it comes down to sacrifice and you feel that very strongly in these three episodes so so i think personally me and i can't speak on behalf of tony although we've talked about this sort of thing a lot i i, I think the cost of rebellion the cost of doing something <laughs> the cost of doing something that you think is right with big stakes um what sacrifices are you willing to make 
uh, if these are questions that are swirling around, I think that's um, those are not only thought provoking, but uh, uh, you know, uh, emotionally um, rich. Sana. No, I mean, I can only add to that, but it's also, you know, the the power that an average person can have when you are pushed in a, you know, to a place where you can't but fight back, you know, and it is a strength to actually move and shift something and, and you know, and be part of rebellion and try to change the world is something in all of us and in everybody. And I think that's why the series focuses on a lot of very normal people that are caught up in a very particular, you know, you know, time within the galaxy far, far away, you know, where really, you know, which are the formative years of the rebellion. And, and you know, and I think what that does to you and how people react is just, you know, it's really at the heart of it and at the heart of Cassian Andros' journey, you know, that that who we know is the rebel that will give us life for the cause. And, and you know, so kind of at the heart of it, but I'm sure Tony Gilbert could it all put it all much better. <laughs> Hello, this is Gabe uh, from Blast Points, and we're huge fans of George Lucas's first feature film, THX 1138. And there appear to be subtle and not so subtle influences in this prison arc to that film. When working on these episodes, was that something that you looked at thematically? So quite honestly, the answer is no, not, not consciously at first. Uh, we started, as I mentioned before, from a place of how do we do a prison sequence that doesn't feel like every other prison we've seen. Um, and, and you know, we, we started talking about this sort of bright, white, antiseptic space. Uh, we started talking about ways that you could control the inmates without having to use the obvious, like, gun to the head or what have you. Um, and awesome. so we just started from that very, that very simple place. But writers' minds work in strange and mysterious ways. So... <laughs> So, I mean, eventually at a certain point, it, yes, it became obvious and it, that there were <laughs> some of what we were discussing, and especially as we got into production design, bared some resemblance to THX. Uh, and then once you sort of realize that, you can be intentional about it, of course. Um, unconsciously, maybe in, in one or all of us, uh, George Lucas's first feature film was bubbling forth and we weren't fully aware of it. I mean, you, as, as a writer, um, uh, you're constantly uh, uh, resurfacing things that have influenced you over your life, uh, whether it's, you know, experiences you've had or, or other pieces of art that you're not always fully conscious of when, when there's <laughs> resurfacing. Um, and then only later do you realize, oh yeah, wow. Like there is some stuff. And I actually, cause I, I had a, I assumed someone was going to ask about this. I, I went back and watched uh, THX again last night and I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> holy, holy cow here. Yeah. There's, there's definitely, <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I take that as a good sign, you know, we're, we're channeling a little bit of OG George Lucas, and that's never a bad thing. Sana? That's never a bad thing. <laughs> hi, Bo. Hi, Sana. Alden and Nikki here from Octo Radio. He's screens are weird. He's down here. Uh, in the hi. current climate, especially post-2016, we've seen resistance emerge across art, especially in TV. And we think Andor reflects that, particularly with moments like Luthen's monologue. In episode 10. So as a writer and producer, respectively, how has crafting this particular story uh, personally helped you both unpack your own ideas and emotions concerning today's world? 
God, that's a deep question. How long have you got? <laughs> Look, I've I mean, got all day. I don't <laughs> foremost, uh, Andrew is a work of fiction, right? And um, and we're working within a, a, a beloved and vast pre-existing franchise. Uh, and many people have in, interpreted that that franchise back to 1977 in a whole host of ways. Um, and, and so, you know, look, everyone's going to bring their sort of personal history and thoughts and, you know, uh, and, 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 and opinions about the world <laughs> to the table when, when they're working on something, but, but really, you know, our, our, our goal is to service the characters that we've created and the story that feels right for them within a pre-existing framework and try to do something original with it. Uh, you know, to whatever extent people want to, uh, you know, interpret that, you know, or see it through a particular lens and see it as applicable to anything, you know, uh, past or present, um, that, that's that's wonderful. We, you know, it, it means that maybe you've created something that generates interesting conversations or debates that people could have in terms of influences for us. I mean, you could, you know, uh, you, know you, you could look at the French resistance, you could look at the American Revolution, you could look at a whole host of different things that one could draw comparisons to. And um, but uh, but but honestly, and you know, we're not sitting down trying to think about this in any sort of didactic or essayistic way when we're doing it. We're literally like, okay, uh, like so, you know, what's he like with his mom at breakfast? You know, like, what does that look like? And you just try to build a believable world. And when you build a believable world, naturally, um, you know, and it's a complex and sophisticated world, if you're lucky enough to get to that stage, uh, it, it leaves a lot open to interpretation. And that's a good thing. Sana? Therefore, I think you can really also you know, in a fantasy and, you know, in a, when you're in, in that, when you're moving in that genre in a galaxy far, far away, if you're creating a, you know, a piece of fiction that is, you know, telling a truthful and complex and political story that is true to that world, I think, you know, it is a real, you know, a lot of people find, you know, emotional connections to characters, to situations, and it, that can, you know, touch them and, and and I think that is a really wonderful thing about fantasy. All righty. First off, uh, thank you both so much for doing all this. This is great. Um, but especially you, Mr. Record. It's it's so exciting that you're here because my dream job is actually becoming a re-recording mixer for film and TV. And you're basically a legend in that field. Uh. And <laughs> in, in Andor, we actually have this whole scene where Bix is about to be interrogated. Uh, using the screams of an alien species. Now, this sound is built up so much, yet we never hear it. We only hear the screams of Bix reacting to it. And this isn't the first time silence has been used to communicate in Star Wars. I'm thinking about the Holdo maneuver in The Last Jedi and the seismic charges in Attack of the Clones. So my question is, why is it that sometimes silence is more impactful than sound? Well, uh, it, speaking... Uh, in this particular scene, um, right. it's a it's a horrific moment for for Bix. You know, she's you know, she's being interrogated. Uh, it's the classic torture thing where her method of torture is being sort of shown to her and kind of built up to her and to the audience as well. So we're kind of in it with Bix now, and we're kind of also anticipating this torture, this thing that's going to happen, and then kind of a classic horror movie move mm -hmm. it's like you don't always show you know the creature the thing the bad guy and let the audience kind of hmm. 
let their imagination, which is always going to be more terrifying than what you're going to right. show or hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, going to absolute silence and it goes to absolute silence there, except for Bix's breathing and eventual scream. And of course, Adrian Arjona is perfect in that mm-hmm. scene. Definitely. He totally carries that. And then uh, you get the sort of like uh, New Hopian mm-hmm. uh, cut to kind of like. Uh, <laughs> yes, of that there. was great. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Sure, of course. I'm Brandon from Talking Bay 94. Uh, a question for you both. Um, you both had extraordinary experience working on many other Star Wars projects. What differentiates and or from those and how has your work been impacted by, by maybe those is? Um, I, I, can, I can jump in here first. I mean, you, you, you're right. I've had a lot of experiences as David has uh, across a number of shows and every show presents different challenges, but it's also the different creative opportunities that really let us uh, explore the different worlds. And what I find so fascinating is, is the journeys that our characters take and the way that we're then able to portray that from a visual standpoint. Uh, and Andor was very interesting in that Tony's vision from the very beginning was a very grounded, very earthly uh, type of experience. So as we approached our shots, we took everything from a, a real world aspect of things. So even things, you know, that we've seen before, like Coruscant, uh, we started from, you know, almost a, a New York, 20th century New York type of atmosphere, you know, large buildings, Chrysler buildings, that sort of thing. But then Mo and Leo, our supervisor, and working with our production designer, Luke Cole, as well, started going, well, how does this work and how would this work in, in reality? So we started looking at Tokyo and other cities and going, well, if you had districts and different things, you know, how would how would it function in, in the real world? And from there, we were able to extrapolate and take it into you know, the CG component of what it is. And, and we approached every scene, every environment in that same similar fashion. Uh, which was, you know, really to, to me very exciting, but also I think helped, you know, build the world that that everybody wanted with Andor that we uh, that we ended up with. Hi, David and DJ. Thanks so much for taking the time. George has placed a huge emphasis on visual effects and sound design. How do your teams work together to achieve a cohesive look and feel for sound for Andor? Well, that's a great question. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's it's always what what I love about the way that we do our Star Wars projects. It's always very collaborative, uh, and if you look at things like you know the Eye of Aldani, as that developed and built, you know we had things of of you know, meteor impacts on on the ship and 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 the buildup of what those sounds are and how it related to to what you're hearing and experiencing in, in that journey affects the way that we then visually portray some of the uh, the buildup. Uh, of, of, of the journey. Um, and that's just one, you know, little anecdote in terms of the way that we approach it, but it's, it's, it's fun because there always is a bit of back and forth, uh, you know, as we all work and collaborate together. Do you agree with that, David? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, um, as much as, uh, the visual effects always inform what we do, you know, we want to see what something looks like before we can, uh, tell you what it sounds like. That's, that's kind of, um how we work um but sometimes yeah sometimes we'll we'll create a sound um early on and visual effects will kind of take that uh, into consideration uh when they're when they're finishing the design for it and so yeah there's there always is a little bit of back and forth um with that hi david hi tj thank you both for taking the time to talk to us um so the question i've got for both of you is with so much of a legacy of star wars you know almost 
approaching 50 years of both sound design and visual effects. What do you, how do you approach the project? What do you bring with you when you start out a project like this? Let's see. I mean, like like TJ, we've worked on several Star Wars uh, projects. Um, worked on Rogue One, uh, for example, did a co-design um, position on, on Rogue One. So kind of coming into Andor with a bit of knowledge on how the Gilroys like to work and what their uh, aesthetic is 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 helpful to to start but of course you there's a larger universe you have to consider um as well with all the other the, the shows and movies and going back to the legacy movies um which of course andor and rogue one kind of directly tie into the original so it's it's a tricky tightrope to walk with if you've got a, a show with a particular aesthetic um like andor and you've got you know say new hope which has uh, a somewhat different aesthetic you know there there are some similarities they both have that sort of classic star wars um old new tech sort of thing where every it's like high tech but everything's a little rusty and a little broken you know um so that 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 is helpful that they both carry that same aesthetic but in terms of sound design yeah i mean like like, like the tie fighters in in uh andor like you obviously you're going to use a classic tie fighter sound there but we you know gave it a little extra you know we gave it a little extra beef it's got a little extra heavy jet engine underneath of it there's an extra creature roar that that happens with it on that pass by on the field so we, we you, you kind of make what's old new you know and you kind of honor the legacy but you want to kind of update it and give it that um, you know and or polish yeah, I'll just echo a little bit what David said there in terms of the visual aesthetic. It's that same thing as honoring uh, what came before, but not being restricted by it either. Uh, the universe of Star Wars is large enough that there's so many different places we're able to explore and approaches we can get that you still have the same base feeling that that you want from the legacy movies and, and, and the entire universe, but that we're able to expand and, and really bring a unique feel uh, you know, while still having it interrelate with things that we we did in Rogue and what we've done with the uh, the surrounding movies as well. Hi guys, Mark from Fantasy Facts here. Um, it's kind of been touched on already, but the you're bringing new sounds to the show and new visuals to the show, but it's got to be Star Wars familiar. It's still got to feel like Star Wars. People have got to connect with it in the same way that they connected with the originals. I know you've kind of touched on that already, but how do you? What's the equation there? What are you looking for that makes you think this blaster still sounds like a Star Wars blaster? That ship still looks like a Star Wars ship. Where do you find the meeting point for those things? You know, um, having I worked on my first Star Wars project I worked on was episode two was Attack of the Clones. And I was assisting Matt Wood and Ben Burt. I did the same role on episode three and then on into Clone Wars and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, so I've been doing a lot of Star Wars for the past couple of decades, and uh, you just kind of get a feel um, over time, especially learning under, you know, the masters, uh, what a certain thing should sound like to live in that world. And, you know, kind of, again, echoing that sort of feel of it's got to be kind of grounded um, and have that sort of uh, you know, a little rusty kind of feel, a little gritty kind of feel, and going into Andor, um uh like Rogue One uh it's it's 
kind of that but even more so uh it's it's um it's even more uh gritty a little a little more uh i guess um almost purely diegetic uh in in sound some of the some of the guns we kind of go for are um uh maybe not as star warsy as uh as we've heard in the past some of them are some of them aren't um that was more uh, sort of a choice of you know for for variety than anything else but also we wanted the guns to sound like guns like like real guns with a sort of edge you know uh sci-fi edge to it but and to me in that way it also sort of maintained that um uh, you know grounded you know tony gilroy uh gritty diet you know aesthetic as well yeah i mean i mean very very similarly you know ILM has has done Star Wars since the very beginning. Uh, you know, as we as we know, as really came out of, of Star Wars is, is why there's the company. Uh, so there is again that taste, that feel that 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 one knows as Star Wars. You know, we look towards you know Ralph McQuarrie's artwork and some of the very you know original you know areas where these concepts had come from. Uh, you know, but it is it's that level of experience. While we don't want to necessarily become stale, you want to push the envelope. You want to create new things. There's a there's a you know a framework that we work around, and you know, in in collaboration with the production designer, with Tony, with ILM, we're able to to build that visual world that still seems familiar and yet lets us explore into to you know, the new shiny things as well. So that we've got, you know, that excitement that, that one expects from Star Wars without going too far afield. Hi everybody, Jason from Blast Points here. So good to talk to you all. Uh, so we've seen visual effects in this new era of Star Wars evolving and we've seen uh, storytelling, especially with Andor evolving with Star Wars. So as huge fans of Star Wars sound, how is the craft of creating sound for this new era of Star Wars evolving, well, um, it, it's uh, it's a tricky thing because if you're you're trying to stay in a world um, that George Lucas and Ben Burke created sonically um, in seventy seven, uh, eighty, and eighty two, uh, eighty one, wait, eighty three. Yes, um, so uh, you're you're going back quite a ways uh in terms of like th there's some very old sound effects there and then when Ben is making sound effects in you know for for New Hope or for Empire let's say um you know there aren't you know like like uh for instance the TIE fighters never lifted off the ground and took off the, they never dropped down from a hanging thing and those was, was, there was never those sound effects so the some of the tricks that you have to sort of do are okay this is what a tie fighter sounds like we all know what it sounds like so what does it sound like when it takes off or sets down and you have to kind of create a sound uh based on the original sound uh that kind of fits in that world that's sort of an example i guess i'm, I'm giving of what it is like to sort of create sounds within an existing universe um is is uh you are you're you have some license to color outside the lines um but uh you don't want to sort of make a habit of that you know it's there is a world you want to honor and live within but then, then at the same time you have to modernize it and we have you know sound systems at home are are much better than what they were you know 50 years ago and so 
um, there's an expectation, I think, now um, of a certain uh, sound um, with modern soundtracks that we hear in the theater every day um, to to uh, update that sort of tone um, for the for the show. Does that make sense? Did I go off the rails? No, made total sense. Loved it. Uh, thank you both for taking my question. I'm Pete Fletcher from Around the Galaxy. This is a question for both of you. On every one of the episodes of, of our show, we have a 10 question segment. And one of those questions happens to be, what is your favorite Star Wars sound effect? And as we know, of course, Star Wars has its own very unique sound. So what is what are both of your favorite Star Wars sound effects and and why? Uh, well, I'll jump in there for for that one since 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 you know Dave, you're the sound guy. Uh, my my favorite sound effect is the screaming Tie Fighter. I find it uh, frightening. I find it exhilarating. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a it's a great question because there's so many good sounds, but when you hear you know even in the in the distance, even the the slight you know approach of a Tie Fighter, you know exactly what it is. Uh, you know to be afraid. And you know that something big and bad is going to happen. Uh, so I, I mean, I think by far that's my favorite. Yeah, that's that's a good one. The the, the tie. There's something in it that's um, uh, it, it taps into some ancient part of your brain to kind of be afraid somehow, like some like you know prehistoric thing. Um, but uh, I also love the the lightsabers. I think that that's a that's a really great one. Um, it's there's nothing quite like that and i if you i can't imagine what else that would sound like you know what that is a perfect example of like you know that's perfect sound design that is exactly what that thing should sound like and i know that that's you know it, it, if it was something else you'd probably say that as well but i can't think of anything else um in the sci-fi world that is more perfectly sound designed than the lightsaber yeah and what's interesting about those two is that they did, those are sounds that didn't exist really until then. And now you can't imagine, as you just said, any other sound for either one of those things. So thank you for taking my question. Sure. TJ, when, as you guys were designing the visual effects, you know, one of the things that has been so interesting about Andor is it's not rooted in sort of the force side of things. And so you've got just a different palette that you're pulling from. You don't have the lightsabers, you don't have the force lightning and all the stuff that we're used to and others. You know, what were, were some of the specific choices that you needed to make in order to make sure that it still felt like Star Wars while it's such a different story and it's a different look? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, you know, an interesting a question. It, it really comes down to the collaboration we had with our production designer and making sure that we still had that every story that we told in every scene and shot was still a Star Wars component of it. And so you'll still see reminiscent shapes, you'll see reminiscent uh, uh, colors, you'll see, you know, the, the way that, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the, the way, you know, things are, are, the explosions take place and you go, Hey, this is, this is a, a, a the, the factory, the abandoned factory in, in episode three is a good example of this, where you still have, you know, these giant anvils that are clearly otherworldly and, and very star Wars inspired falling down as people are, 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 are getting out of the way. And it's, you don't need force powers for that. You don't need you know, the, something beyond the blasters to make that an entirely Star Wars-y scene. Uh, and it was it was looking at each episode and each moment and going, hey, 
we're doing what we always do. We're making Star Wars shots. We're making a Star Wars aesthetic. Uh, and just because we don't have some of these other components doesn't mean that we can't continue to make Star Wars choices in, in new and interesting ways. Awesome. And that's, a killer, that's a killer scene, TJ. You guys did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love, again, to, to talk about both of y'all's career journeys and getting to Andor, um, especially with how we're viewing it on television screens. And we've touched on that briefly, but as Star Wars has moved more to the TV realm and as both of y'all have worked more and more in making that a more holistic experience for people watching at home, I would love to dive in if that's challenging at all or if that's been something to adapt to for your teams as you've tried to create something for people that are just watching on the couch rather than in a movie theater um for for Go us ahead. i mean is it is it it is challenging it, it's it's more content uh that we that we build together but what i find really exciting about it is it's more content put together so you have a more a better opportunity to get in depth and tell you know stories that have uh just more uh, uh you know, in-depth uh, approach in dealing with your characters, but also with the visual storytelling of it as well. And so while, you know, there's a, a, a different methodology in terms of, you know, the way we shoot things and the practical approach of, of, of what it is, the output, the intention is that it's, it is a seamless journey. And whether it's a film or a television show that you're getting that same level of expectation for what it looks like and how it makes you feel really. Yeah, it's the same for us. It's it's always um, the, we approach it like you know for for Andor, it's like a whatever it is a nine and a half ten hour movie. It's that's kind of how we we approach it, and um, we you know we mix in native Atmos, and uh, you know we we have a full complement of uh, editors and mixers, and we we have a you know one of the greatest composers working right now on the show and of course you know tony gilroy is like uh he's the master uh so uh, it's there's uh no punches pulled um on on these uh streaming shows for sure hi i'm caitlin the other half of sky talkers i wanted to ask specifically about this arc that this most recent arc episodes eight through ten um are there any specific themes or keywords associated with these arcs that help set the look and sound of them apart from each other well um well just to take the prison for example then the main uh sound thing in the prison is uh um, is the you know the factory area, the floor the, you know, the worker area those seven tables um that's uh uh that's sort of the you know i guess the the sound of the prison in a way uh is that sort of that rhythm of all the workers at different tables trying to beat each other so they can get either flavor in their food or you know not get you know shocked um juxtaposed against there's sort of like an eerie quiet um in the in when there's when they're not doing that those are their that's what the the prison is it's like if you're not working then you've got sort of the dead silence to kind of reflect on if you're, where you're at in that moment um compared to like you know Ferrix, which is kind of a bustling town and uh it's kind of gritty and dusty and we kind of push the foley a little bit in there to kind of really feel all those gritty footsteps and and, and that sort of thing and in the prison it's a little more um subdued um unless you're on the factory floor does that answer the question? I feel like I don't answer the question. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, and similarly for us as well. I mean, as as in this the latest arc, as we're getting more into the world of that the Imperials have created, uh, and you 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 know visit you know the ISB, and then you go back to the prison, you really st- see the the sterility of it all, and it's 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 understanding and it's it's storytelling in a way of of the 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 order that's created by the Imperial. Where again, you know, similar to what they would say, and for for Ferrix, where it's a little more rough and tumble, a little bit more. Um, you know, out you know the outskirts, uh, uh, a little more wild west. Uh, but we've evolved into understanding what a more free society would have looked like at one point, uh, and then you know what this organized, uh, really method, uh, you know, structured uh, imperial rhythm is of well, hey, we're in a prison, and um, and there's one order that you have to follow. Right question that I have is how has both visual effects and sound design changed as people's home cinema experience has got better and better? We've all got bigger screens, better sound systems. So how have you both had to adapt as in, you know, Skywalker Sound and ILM to to sort of counter that? Because obviously we're we're listening more intently, we're watching closer and we're seeing more. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for us, it's 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 a great thing that people are able to experience bigger and better things visually. Uh, you know, with the with everyone having HD televisions and HDR, it expands our palette to be able to present material. And so we'll create our shots uh, in 4K now as opposed to doing it in 2K. So we've we've evolved the resolution which we're creating our, our material with. Uh, but not only that, but it allows us to in the finishing of it all with color grading to be to, to present the deliverables that are specific for different viewing platforms. And the nice thing about the way the streaming and the way Disney Plus works is, is based on your equipment, you'll get a certain stream of the show. And so with that, uh, it's really tailored to, to an individual's viewing experience. Uh, and, and Dave, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a similar experience for you. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, I think that in the future world, you know, the focus is obviously more on a theatrical experience and for, for streaming, um, you know, like when the theater, at the end of your mixing process, you're going to make a home video version, you know, of your track and then kind of for streaming, it's a, you're kind of starting with that. It's a bit of the opposite. Uh, we do mix in, in Atmos for the, you know, for, for those that have a home Atmos set up, but we pay equal attention to our 5.1 and our stereo um, because, you know, we're, we're well aware that, you know, people are watching the show on, you know, laptops and, and iPads and using earbuds. And uh, we, we want that experience to be just as um, exciting as, you know, that your thousand dollar, your multi thousand dollar home Atmos setup. So um, it's a, uh, that's, I guess that's the real challenge. Yeah, you're getting the full experience no matter which platform you're on. And, you know, we we certainly will finish a a show so you could enjoy it in the theater or at home or or on your iPad if you had to. And it's, uh, it's presenting that material in that way. All right. Those were our roundtable episodes as well as our full discussion on episode 10. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Honestly, I have no idea what's coming next for episodes 11 and 12. 
Me neither. <laughs> I'm I'm nervous. I'm stressed. I'm excited. I am sad. Yeah. I'm all the emotions all together. Every single <laughs> one of them. Yeah. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. We've had such an incredible time uh, and feel so grateful for all of you listening. All of you listening is the reason why we get to continue to do incredible things like these roundtables that we've been able to do. So thank you so much for listening, for being a part of the show um, so that we can continue to bring you really cool things to Sky Talkers. So if you want to find us and talk to us about it online, you can find us on Twitter at Sky Talkers Pod or our personal handle. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Crarity. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, all great places to find us. You can also email us too. Um, You can head on over to our website to find our emails there. And if you haven't left us a review yet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would really appreciate it if you took a couple seconds to go and do that. And if you're looking for other ways to support us and how to get involved in our Discord community, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Rachel, Tim, Aldersi, Paul, Danny, Megan, Becky, Sophia, BB, Nate, Andrew, Mason, Aubrey, Emily, Angela, Amanda, Ian, Stephanie, John, and Kate. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. 